This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 75. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, Lessons from the Front Lines. Opposing lawyers don't get to tell you who takes depositions in what order. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a great week and that you're staying busy. As you know, each of our Lessons from the Front Lines episodes spotlights a brand new court decision from around the country that involves a deposition related issue. And because these episodes are based on decisions that are hot off the presses, the orders that we report on may be modified, withdrawn, or subject to some other challenge. Because they're brand new, they are always drawn from cases being actively litigated at the time that an episode is published. Today's episode, based on a decision in the Orchard Lake Schools case last week from the Eastern District of Michigan, is just a reminder that in federal court and in most states, there is no set priority as to who gets to go first in taking depositions. And on a related note, your opponent also doesn't get to tell you in what order other depositions will take place just because they have their own preference about how things should proceed. We each get to decide the timing of our depositions and in what order we will take them. We get to map out our own deposition plan. Not only that, but even the fact that your adversary issues the first notice for a given witness doesn't automatically mean that you now can't notice and depose that witness first. Here's an extreme example to make the point. Suppose you have six months to conduct discovery in your case. Your adversary now issues the first notice for a key witness, but sets the deposition to take place just one week before the end of that six-month discovery phase. Obviously, if the mere issuance of that notice operated as a bar to your deposition of that witness on any earlier date, we'd all be stuck, right? So while we generally work in a collegial way with opposing counsels, including cooperation in the order in which witnesses will be deposed and who will depose them first, it just doesn't always work that way. That's why the federal rules, and again, most state court rules, establish no priority themselves in terms of who gets to go first in deposing party or non-party witnesses. And it's why the federal rules and most state court rules likewise don't prevent you from setting a witness for deposition in the near future, even though the same witness has already been noticed by someone else for a deposition further down the road. That's something touched on in one of the cases in our show notes for this episode, the Bauman case, B-A-U-M-A-N. There, the defendant had apparently noticed the plaintiff's deposition before the case was removed to federal court. In federal court, they made the argument that they noticed the plaintiff's deposition first, and so the plaintiff shouldn't now be allowed to take defense depositions first. Judge said it doesn't matter who noticed it first. There's no priority. So even being the first to notice doesn't guarantee that you're going to be the first to depose that given witness. Now, does all this mean that scheduling depositions is always going to be a no-holds-barred, full-contact sport? Of course not. It just means that there are too many different kinds of cases, too many different kinds of witnesses, too many different situations and factors to bake those kinds of considerations, priorities and so on, into the rules. The only real controls or regulators on scheduling contests are common sense, professionalism, and if common sense and professionalism fail, then the ultimate regulator is going to be the judge. 
and the judge has the power to determine sequence and priority. In the federal system, that's laid out in rule, uh, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26D3, which says, quote, unless the parties stipulate or unless the court orders otherwise for the parties and witnesses' convenience and in the interests of justice, A, methods of discovery may be used in any sequence, and B, discovery by one party does not require any other party to delay its discovery. Put another way, your deposition schedule is not my deposition schedule and doesn't determine my deposition schedule. Now, so that's under the federal rules. A supermajority of states either mirror that language or substantially follow that language in terms of priority. Methods of discovery may be used in any sequence. Discovery by one party does not require any other party to delay its discovery. That's the provision that authorizes what I said earlier. Just because somebody noticed a witness at some point down the road doesn't mean you're now obligated to sit back and wait for that party's deposition of that witness who you may also need uh, to take place. Again, I'm not suggesting in any way that you adopt a habit of undercutting the deposition schedule of an adversary just because you can set them earlier than the adversary set them. I'm really speaking specifically of more extreme cases where an opponent appears to have carefully crafted a deposition schedule that is designed to impair your own discovery plan and put you in a box. So the point is this, the only person who gets to determine the timing and sequence of your depositions is you, unless you stipulate otherwise with the opposing lawyer or unless a court determines otherwise. Okay, in today's case in the spotlight, uh, which is called John Doe versus Orchard Lake Schools, a December 2, 2021 decision from a Michigan federal judge, the Archbishop of Detroit asked the court to require the plaintiffs who were suing a Catholic religious organization to take the depositions of other witnesses first before deciding whether the Archbishop's deposition was necessary. It appears from the court's order that this was merely a convenience argument. Take them first and then get back to me and let me know if you think you need me, which seemed to be the Archbishop's argument. And in presenting this argument about the sequence of depositions, the parties apparently had to submit a joint statement to the court outlining the issues uh, before the hearing so the court knew what it was going to be asked to resolve. And in that joint statement, I should mention that the archbishop apparently referred to his deposition as an apex deposition. That's a term, as you know, often used to describe the depositions of high-ranking corporate or government or other organizational officials and the notion behind that doctrine, as we've talked about before, is that you shouldn't be able to depose, for example, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, which is likely to be very disruptive to the organization, if there are lower level officials who can tell you the same thing. Now here, while the Archbishop's papers apparently did refer to his deposition as an apex deposition, the court says, that really didn't seem to be the argument that he was making. Again, it seemed to be a matter of personal preference. In the opinion, the judge appears to reject the archbishop's arguments almost out of hand, basically saying, look, you just don't get to decide when the other side takes your deposition under ordinary circumstances. You just don't have a say in that. So the judge rejects the argument saying there really wasn't even an effort to show harm beyond the generic claim that any witness could make that the deposition would interfere with his work. So the court says 
you haven't really shown any basis for requiring the plaintiff to depose other witnesses first. And in the same breath, the court cites this principle that the federal rules just don't permit one party to make unilateral decisions regarding the timing and sequence of depositions during the discovery phase of civil litigation. So that's the general rule. We get to control our own destiny, absent your stipulation or a court order to the contrary. You'll find a similar decision in the show notes by a judge out of the Eastern District of Virginia in the Navient Solutions case. Uh, there, one of the defendants took issue with the discovery responses served by the plaintiff, saying, according to the decision, uh, that the defendant found the plaintiff's objections to the paper discovery to be dilatory and obstreperous, and therefore the defendant would decline to appear for a deposition until the defendant was satisfied that the plaintiff's responses to discovery were sufficient. The judge again there pointed to the absence of any kind of rule as to who gets to go first, and that even if the plaintiff had in fact served discovery responses that were deficient, that's not a sufficient basis to decline to appear for deposition. The defendant didn't file a motion for protective order and didn't provide any other reason that the law recognizes for avoiding the deposition. So what's the lesson from Navient Solutions? A party still has to sit for depositions even if the adversary has not complied with its own discovery obligations unless a court orders otherwise. This is a timing and sequence principle. In essence, I don't have to hold off on my deposition of you just because you object to how I've responded to your paper discovery. You don't get to hold up my depositions until you're satisfied, if ever, with my responses again, unless a court says otherwise. The Russell case in the show notes again makes the same point. In that case, the parties were in disagreement about who gets to go first. One of the parties apparently saying that the plaintiff's deposition would not proceed until after documents were obtained. There was also apparently some concern in that case by one of the parties that if the depositions happened in a certain order, then any unscrupulous witnesses for the other side would have the opportunity to get their story straight before testifying. Same outcome. The judge in the Russell case said, there is no legal precedent giving a party the right to demand discovery in a certain order or to withhold discovery, their meaning depositions, on account of a discovery dispute over a different type of discovery, their meaning document productions. So the rules just don't permit a party to make unilateral decisions about when and how discovery will take place. There is no priority in propounding discovery and the fact that one party has not responded to discovery does not entitle the adversary to refuse to cooperate in discovery, including depositions served on them. Okay, let's go over some basic principles about noticing depositions, priority, scheduling, and then classes dismissed. Number one, it's always smart to work things out with opposing lawyers. That's almost rule number one in my practice. There may be no single dispute that irks judges more than fights over when depositions are going to be taken, where they're going to be taken, and in what order. If you can work it out, work it out. If you have to bend without prejudicing your client's position, do it. I do that all the time. It's okay. Sometimes letting your opponent go first, contrary to your initial sense about things, may produce a goldmine of actionable intelligence. I often let opposing lawyers 
depose my clients first because I can easily tell from the questions that the opposing lawyer asks my clients what that opposing lawyer knows, doesn't know, what documents they have, what their theory is, what they think my theory is, and it also tells me what I don't know yet and what documents I don't have. This episode today is really more about situations where you can't work it out. And so I tell you what the ground rules are if you can't work it out. Now, lawyers will make all sorts of claims or representations to you if you don't know otherwise about what the law says or about what the rules say about who gets to go first. So let's clear up some of the fog. Point number one, and let's dial back to even choosing dates. The federal rules and most court rules do not require you to reach agreement with your adversaries on the dates you choose for your depositions. The rules only require that you provide reasonable notice. They do not require the consent of an adversary to the dates you choose. You can imagine how hard it would be to get deposition dates if there was a rule that says the opposing side has to consent. Again, if you can get consent, do that. If you can work it out, do that. If you can work it out, but it's going to be a little inconvenient for you, still do it. Always do that. The point here is that if you can't work it out, the rules don't require it. What most judges require instead is that you go ahead and set your depositions after asking a reasonable number of time, and you know I recommend five and do it in writing, uh, make those five requests before you set anything unilaterally. Next point, no one has the absolute right to go first in their depositions in the entire federal system and in most states. Now, always check your local rules. A few states do have statutes on priority. New York, for example, being one of them. I think it's Civil Practice Law 3106, where it sets a priority in some circumstances. But in most jurisdictions, nobody gets to go first. Now, clearly, the norm is that whoever notices a proposed opponent first, as a matter of courtesy, deposes the witness first. Again, though, for purposes of educating you about the process, that's not an absolute rule. If an adversary has noticed a particular witness first, but as I mentioned as an example earlier in the episode, has noticed their deposition to take place on a date far into the discovery period, that in no way prevents you from setting that same witness for an earlier date. In the federal system, that's straight from Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26D3B. Again, discovery by one party does not require any other party to delay its discovery. They're talking about depositions, among other things, in that section. So, for example, your decision to depose John Doe six months from now does not require me to delay my effort to depose John Doe earlier than that. Again, please understand these are the bright line rules, but you obviously have to use judgment and discretion in deciding whether you want to jump in front of someone else's deposition and whether, if they seek court relief, you have and can articulate a sufficient basis for doing what you've done. Another point. Sometimes you'll hear another lawyer say something like, well, I want to take your client first, but I can't set it up until I get your responses to my request for production, interrogatories, whatever, and make sure they're complete. Yeah, you probably heard that a lot, but know this, that's a preference, that's a wish. It's not a law, it's not a rule, it's not a regulation. It makes sense that a lawyer might not want to depose certain witnesses, especially an opposing party, until complete and proper discovery responses 
or in hand, but that's a preference. And in some cases, preferences like that can eat up a great deal of the time allowed for discovery. So you have to ask yourself, is this lawyer's preference reasonable in principle? It surely is. But is it reasonable under the circumstances and under the time frame that you've been given? Tougher question. Next point. Judges know that you have the right to schedule your depositions as you see fit. They know that you get to decide that. So you have to make sure that you don't put yourself in a bad situation by agreeing to the expressed preference, the wish of an opposing lawyer, just in the interest of professionalism, which may then leave you insufficient time to do what you need to do. I can assure you there are many judges out there that will not sympathize with you if you want to extend the discovery and associated deadlines because you allowed the opposing lawyer to dictate the timing of your depositions and you've run out of time. The judge may very well say to you, you know, you had the absolute right to set your depositions. And while it's certainly understandable that you wished to cooperate with the opposing counsel, you should not have cooperated to the point where it prejudiced your client's interests. Request for extension denied. Here's another thing to consider. There may well be situations where you need for your depositions to take place in a certain order and or where you need to go first. Maybe there's a legitimate reason for you to go first on the grounds that you have legitimate reasons to fear opposing witnesses may offer fraudulent testimony unless the depositions uh, go in a particular sequence. Now, just saying that isn't likely to get you anywhere. You can't just say, I'm afraid the plaintiff or the defendant will listen to what my client says and they'll make up their testimony if we don't go first. But sometimes there is evidence of deception or dishonesty on the part of a party in their other discovery responses that might justify this. For example, if there's evidence that multiple plaintiffs or defendants have cooperated and coordinated in the submission of their interrogatory answers where the answers should be very different, but they're all literally word for word the same, you've probably got a decent argument to ask the court to impose a certain priority in the way depositions uh, take place. And that's okay. Courts will allow priority if it makes sense. Uh, they may allow priority, for example, if you want to depose a plaintiff before the depositions of the plaintiff's treating physicians take place. That's the bank's decision uh, in the show notes. Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26C1B and 26D3 and their state equivalents, and they're very common among the state courts around the country, allow a court to determine that discovery take place in a certain sequence for convenience or in the interests of justice. So while there's no default rule about who goes first or who goes in what order, the rules do explicitly allow you to ask the court to set a priority if it makes sense. And that's one of two ways to actually establish priority or a sequence that's binding on both parties, either a court order or a stipulation between you and the other parties. That's exactly what uh, Federal Rule 26D3 says. It has some uh, qualifying language in there that says that there is no sequence or priority unless the parties stipulate or the court orders otherwise. All right, here's another one uh, that comes up. You may have encountered this. You're trying to schedule depositions and your adversary says, well, I got your discovery responses, but they're not complete. So I'm not going to agree to dates for you to depose my witnesses until we get straight on, on your answers. That's just wrong. It doesn't generally matter in terms of scheduling depositions 
whether if you are trying to schedule them, you are out of compliance with your own discovery responses, interrogatories, requests for admissions, uh, responses to requests for production. That's the Roth case, the Navient case, the Russell case, all in the show notes. In other words, there's no kind of a stopple or unclean hands doctrine at work here. Even if you're wildly out of compliance with your own discovery obligations, you are still entitled under the rules to set depositions of the opposing parties and take them in any order. So the opposing side's objections to your paper discovery are not self-executing. It does seem reasonable, doesn't it, that you, that you ought not to be able to take depositions if you haven't complied in obvious ways, maybe flagrant ways, with your own obligation to respond to their discovery. But the rules say these two things stand on their own. And if you think about it, that makes sense. Uh, there are some lawyers who will never be satisfied with your discovery responses. We've all run into them. And so the way the rules are crafted, what they essentially do is force us as lawyers. If we think the adversary's discovery responses are insufficient, the rules put the burden on us to confer with our opponent about the deficiencies and if we can't resolve it, then to seek court intervention. What the rules uh, essentially say you can't do is block your adversary's discovery because you think that their responses uh, to your discovery are deficient. Now, if you should think that your opposing party's responses are insufficient, and if you think that those deficiencies will prejudice your ability to take depositions, file a motion to compel uh, better responses and a companion motion for protective order to block them from proceeding with their depositions until you obtain your discovery responses. A judge is likely to agree with you if the opposing side's discovery violations are serious enough to prejudice the way that you take your depositions. But you can't just tell someone that you're not going to cooperate in the setting of depositions because of their own non-compliance. You have to file papers with the court. You have to act. All right, next point. If you wish to set a priority, file that motion to compel and the companion motion for protective order just to be safe. That's the bank's case in the show notes. The motion to compel gets your deposition set first and the motion for protective order blocks contrary efforts by your adversaries. Uh, in the bank's case, the defendants wanted to take the plaintiff's deposition first, so they filed a motion to compel, and at the same time, they wanted to prevent other depositions before the plaintiffs, so they filed a motion for protective order. Very smart move. Now, were both technically necessary? Hard to say. Granting one probably would moot the other, but the defense in that case left no room for daylight for the opponent to say that the court didn't have the proper motions for relief before it. Next point, if an adversary claims priority because they set a deposition of a witness, but they set it far into the future, as we've covered, there's nothing to stop you from noticing the same witness earlier. It's a game I've seen some lawyers play. They take the position that whoever notices first goes first. And of course, if you're under the gun or you've got a deadline for your discovery phase, you're going to be in a jam if you let that happen. Again, the rules are crystal clear. Nobody's guaranteed the right to go first. It doesn't matter who noticed first. So don't let lawyers bully you into changing your deposition plan and potentially 
prejudicing your effort to gather evidence by saying, well, I noticed that witness first, so I get to go first. Now, of course, if your adversary noticed a witness's deposition three weeks out from today, you don't want to quickly issue a notice for the same witness two weeks out from today. That would still be reasonable notice, but it's not a terribly good look for you. A lawyer with any experience at all is likely to ask a court to intervene, and you're not likely to come out on the winning side on that kind of dispute. I'm talking about situations where the opposing lawyer sets depositions far into the future and then tries to guilt you into agreeing to that and holding off on your depositions uh, until they take theirs. Anytime you're in state or federal court and you have a discovery deadline in place, you just can't afford to let grass grow under your feet in terms of getting your depositions set and taken. All right, let's suppose you wanna go first. Um, what's the best way to do that? Well, first, work it out with the other side. Good, good old-fashioned agreement or power of persuasion. Another way to do it, be the first to notice and set your deposition uh, in the near term. Set it for two, three, four weeks out. Setting your depositions to take place in the imminent future will generally discourage opponents from trying to set theirs even sooner. If you don't have agreement and you do need a priority or particular sequence, file those twin motions, the motion to compel and a motion for protective order. But refusals to cooperate in scheduling or in appearing for depositions are not self-executing. Sanctions generally follow if a party doesn't appear for a properly noticed deposition, whether the date was consented or not. The federal rules, as I mentioned, don't require consent uh, in setting a deposition for a particular date. Most state court rules don't require consent. They only require reasonable notice. So parties can't just decide not to show up for a deposition because there wasn't agreement on the dates, there wasn't agreement on priority, or there's some other discovery dispute. They just can't refuse to show up without risking sanctions. All right, two other points and then we'll be done. First, remember on the march to establishing priority that what matters most is issuing the notice, not just engaging in email exchanges with opposing lawyers about when you plan on noticing depositions. So issuing the first notice is at least the first clear step in arguing that you get to go first. The courts are very clear that email exchanges about deposition dates are not deposition notices. So get that notice out if you don't have agreement very quickly. Notice them first, even if it isn't determinative. Being the first to notice will usually get your depositions completed first. All right, and here's the final point, and I think I've saved the best for last in terms of a cautionary tale for you. Be careful about informal agreements to priority. I don't want you to inadvertently be backed into a stipulation that discovery will take place in a particular order or at a given time. This is a critical point, my friends. Remember that Rule 26 in the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure says there is no priority unless the parties stipulate otherwise or unless a court orders. Well, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 29, as it happens, is titled, guess what? Stipulations about discovery procedure. And that rule allows parties to make stipulations about discovery that the rules don't otherwise provide. So you can stipulate under Rule 29 to the order in which depositions take place. And here's the kicker. 
you can do it by accident. There is no Form 29 under the rule. A Rule 29 stipulation can be something as informal as a series of emails back and forth between you and your opposing counsels. I covered that in Episode 22, specifically on Rule 29 stipulations about depositions. And the last case in the show notes for Episode 22 is a case called Richardson versus BNSF Railway Company. In that case, the court held that an email exchange between the lawyers about the date and place for the plaintiff to depose defense witnesses was a Rule 29 stipulation. It doesn't even matter if you're in federal court whether you know Rule 29 exists or not. The court will educate you about it if it appears that you've plainly agreed to a particular priority or sequence or dates and are not honoring that agreement, however informal, and the opposing side is now seeking relief to enforce it. So resist the urge to loosely agree to suggestions by an adversary about how the depositions would or should unfold. They may know about Rule 29 or its state court equivalent, and you might not, but it doesn't really matter. If a court looks at your email exchanges and it looks like you've stipulated, uh, as the rules allow to a particular sequence, you're stuck. A lawyer who understands how that works may very well email you in a very chatty sense, as if they were your best friend, and tell you that it would be good if everybody agreed on deposition dates, but that the parties should hold off on scheduling them until everybody gets their paper discovery out and the response is back, and that they would like to take your client first. Is that okay with you? Well, if you say yes, guess what? You likely have just established a Rule 29 stipulation. So now you've agreed to the sequence. So what do I say to lawyers who email me in that manner? It's easy enough for me just to defer and to say, look, I appreciate your proposal. I'll give it some thought. But at this point, I'm respectfully unable to agree to those proposals. And that's all it takes. But watch out for that trap because, again, the rules allow you to stipulate away your right to otherwise be the captain of your own ship when it comes to your deposition plan. All right, that's it for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice, now in its third edition at 450 pages, available on Amazon and just about everywhere you get your books. And if you have a moment, be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. The production staff is deeply appreciative of the reviews that you've been leaving so far. We love those. So if you have a moment, uh, dial down to where you can leave a review. If you want to write something that you like about the podcast, by all means do that. But if you just have enough time to click that five stars, we would absolutely love it. Have a great day and we'll talk to you soon.